If you got your Bibles, go ahead and go to 2 Corinthians 9, is again where we'll be, and we're in the heart of this series uh, called Rhythms of Grace. If you're not uh, familiar with looking up Scripture, it'll be on the screen uh, behind me, and you can follow along there. But we're, uh, we're in week three of this series where we're talking about what grace is. And if you have any background in the church, if you have any background uh, in the faith community, grace is a word you've heard uh, for years. I mean, it's just part of like our language and our natural word that we use. We, we may use it to greet each other. We may use it to encourage each other, say grace to you, or we you know, hope you experience grace. I, I even sign my emails, grace in peace. It, Paul did that. I thought if it was good for Paul, it's good for Patrick. And I'll start signing my emails like that. I don't think he had email. He signed his letters uh, like that. But that's just a word that we've used. And I know for me, even growing up in a church for years and years, that I spent there, the term and the understanding of grace, maybe I didn't quite get. I knew it was something we ought to be about as Christians or something we experience as Christians, but like, really, what is it? And that's what we've been talking about in this series, is how to understand how the rhythm of grace plays out in our life, sets the tone for our life so that it can play out of our lives and affect other people. And I've talked before, you know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago how, like, PJ, my son, just seems to have this rhythm of life. He's always listening to music. He's always tapping his foot. The, the table's always shaking at dinner. I'm like, just stop for a minute. And there's other times that just we play out rhythms in our life. For me, one of the biggest ways I do that is when I think about vacation. Vacation for me, when I'm planning on going on vacation, I am not one of these who just show up and be like, let's see what happens. Let's see what goes from here. I am a planner. I am a huge planner of vacation. Like I will plan, you know, who, where we, what cars picking us up at the airport, to what cars dropping us off at the airport, and everything that happens in between. Because I want a rhythm to play out. The worst thing for me on vacation is to. It's not that I don't like relaxing. I do like relaxing, but I like to have a plan to relax and how to relax. And I feel like if I'm wasting time and not making most of the opportunity. And so, if you ask my wife and kids, they would say, usually, anytime we do our family vacation, it's pretty planned out so that when we're there, I don't have to worry about planning. I'm a natural planner. And so for me, if I can go on vacation and have everything already planned, that's vacation for me. And you're like, you're a weirdo. You're odd. But that's just the way that rhythm plays out in my mind. Sometimes I have to work ahead of time to set up a rhythm in my life so that it will play out down the road. And that's the way grace is. It's not just something that we say, okay, I want to be a gracious person or I want to feel more grace in my life. Sometimes we have to work at it and allow it to blossom in our lives. And that's what this series is designed to do. Week one, we talked about generosity and how this idea, we don't have to come up with the resources to be gracious, that God's grace has given us in abundance. It's meant to be put to use and invested. And last week, we talked about responding to people and we respond out of this abundance that we have, that God has given us more, that God's grace will never run out. There's not going to be a day that the bank account is empty and we don't have to hoard grace. We can actually let it flow freely. And the way we actually experience more grace of God is by giving grace away and responding to people that are caught in a pit of despair and and just letting it flow through us. And so that's responding. And today we're moving into this third aspect of grace that we find in 2 Corinthians 9. So 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 and 11 just continues this theme. And look at these verses with me. It says this, He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous 
in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, these two verses talk about the next beat of grace, and it's this idea that I want to talk about is advocating for other people, becoming an advocate for grace. You see, there's a difference between just responding in grace for somebody and meeting a need in their life to then becoming an advocate for them and an advocate for grace. And this is what Paul is talking about here. When we read this passage, for those of us who don't live or understand a farming culture, we may miss what he's talking about here. This idea of supplying seed to someone else is a pretty big deal. And it's actually the seed he's talking about to make bread here is actually wheat. And I want to give you a little history of wheat right quick. This is probably not what you came to church for this morning, but let me lay it out for you. Wheat was and is still one of the major crops produced in and around the land of Israel. And there's one amazing fact about wheat that makes it so attractive to grow. Wheat, as much as almost any other thing, produces additional seed from what it's originally planted. So you can take one seed of wheat and you can place it and and, uh, plant it, and it will on average produce about five plants, five heads of fruit. And in those five heads are average 20 to 22 seeds for more wheat. So you think about one seed that you plant is getting a 110% return on its investment. So you can plant one thing and get 110 back. If I told you of an investment strategy that if you could invest $1 and in one season get $110 back, you would either come running at me with money or you would say, you're crazy, get out of here. There's no such investment. But this is why wheat is such an amazing crop because it produces an abundance of return. It multiplies itself. And this is the analogy that Paul is using in this passage. He is reminding people that God's grace is a sure investment. But it's not just a sure investment. It will bring massive returns. If you allow grace to play out in your life, it will bring about massive returns. It will not only provide enough returns for you to eat bread for food, but it will provide seed to sow again and to multiply. Now we can imagine just how meaningful Paul's challenge is for us here to not only receive the bounty of grace in our lives, but to also use it to help others in need and to also share our abundance with them. Can I tell you, here's how we normally approach like being gracious to somebody. And this is what we talked about last week with responding to need. So we find somebody in need and we're like, all right, I'm going to help them. So I'm going to give them, as Paul talks about here, a piece of bread to eat metaphorically, right? Whatever that is. So maybe it is literally something to eat. Maybe it's financial help. Maybe it's emotional help in this moment of need. And we bring them to a point that we take them where they were. We go and meet them where they are. We talked about last week and bring them out of their pit and get them out of the pit and to a safe zone. And we go, that was grace. And then here's what we typically do. I gave them bread. Now I'm going to walk away. And I'm going to go in my direction and leave them there. Now, can I tell you how dangerous this is? Because here's what I want you to understand. Grace is not just the rescue from the pit. It also has to be the remedy from falling back into the pit. I don't know about you, but I've experienced this so many times in my life with people in my life. Maybe I've reached out and helped financially. Maybe I've helped them emotionally to get through a relationship. Maybe I've helped them in all kinds of different ways. We've just reached out and we've gotten gracious and we've gotten them out of a pit. And then I start walking in a direction and I look back and before I know it, they've fallen right back into the pit again. They're back down there. 
made another poor decision or circumstances overwhelm them again and push them right back down there. And so what do we have to do? We go back. We try to go back down into the pit, get them out again. And at some point, what eventually happens? You're standing over here, you're looking back, and you're like, oh my gosh, they fell into the pit again. And what do you do? You don't rush back. At some point, you grow frustrated. At some point, they grow frustrated. And they go, I don't deserve to be out of the pit. And I keep falling back in here. And the grace is not just getting them through the edge of disaster and away from disaster. It's actually becoming the remedy and helping create an environment where they can start growing and moving in a healthy direction. But the truth is, you and I know this doesn't just happen in other people's lives. It happens in our lives too, right? I mean, how many times have you finally gotten maybe through somebody's help out of a pit and then you fall right back in? And you feel like you're tethered to the bottom of the pit versus something that's going to draw you out of the pit. You're, you're tethered to this idea that I am constantly just deserve to be down here. I constantly deserve this versus deserving an area uh, of growth and nurturing. This is so key in our lives. And what I want us to do today is look at what Paul talked about here, about how we can move from just giving them bread to actually giving them their own seed to sow to actually begin to create multiplying grace in their life, to create a thriving environment of growth in their lives and in our lives that keep us from falling back into that pit. And he does this uh, in an incredible way when he talks about this idea of not just giving bread to eat, meeting a specific need, but he says, give them seed to sow, create an environment of growth. Now, as nice as this sound and as simple as a concept of this is, we often don't do it. We often fall short of this. Why, why don't we? Because as most often, we don't feel like we're actually experiencing an abundance of harvest in our life. You're like, Patrick, that 110% return on grace that you're talking about, I wish that I could experience that. But like right now, I feel like all I've got is enough grace in my life for me and occasionally a little bit, a little piece of bread to throw to somebody else. I don't have any leftover seed. I don't have anything that I can share with somebody else to cultivate a new patch to grow more wheat in their life. I feel like I still need more in my life. I'm not experiencing this. I'm not producing the 110%. And what I want you to know is wheat and grace grow naturally. It actually needs very little natural resources. Wheat just needs space and time. And grace is the same way. (coughs) However, there are two primary things that will hamper wheat from growing. And I think these affect our grace growing as well. And the first thing that affects it is disease. The first thing that will stop wheat from producing is disease. And when something gets into the plant as it's germinating, that either hampers the production of seed or it damages the seed that it produces. Some kind of disease, some kind of rot that gets in there, some kind of thing that pushes it just off of focus and just out of the direction it's supposed to go and it ends up creating nothing. There's, a, there's an example, it's even in the scripture, of a wheat and a tear. A tear is something that looks just like wheat. On the outside, it looks exactly like it, but the only difference is when you open it up to look at the seed pod, the thing that's not there is seed. There's no seed. It didn't produce anything because some kind of disease got in there and kept it from producing. Even though it looked like it, it didn't produce it. And you may feel like, 
Patrick, you are describing me. This is the way my Christian life feels. Is I feel like I look like it. I try to put on the outside trappings, but if you really examine the interior of my life, man, it seems empty. I don't have any extra. And maybe there's a disease. Maybe there's something that's affecting that, and we're going to talk about that. But the second thing that hurts wheat from being produced is pests or insects come, and they take the seed away before it can be harvested. Even though it was produced in a healthy way, they come and steal the seed before it has a chance to be harvested. And I think this is a very obvious analogy in our life as well. There are things that, even though we're producing grace and we're producing that abundance, there are things that will come and steal it and take it away and run away with it before we have a chance to use it, maybe even our own lives or in the lives of other people. These same threats impact our production of abounding grace. Sin can creep into our lives, twist our hearts and minds, create unhealthy responses to people in our life. Outside pests can sneak into our hearts and steal our joy and our grace. Things like bitterness, jealousy, ungratefulness can come in and steal the seed of grace in our life. So how do we deal with these? How do we have an abundance of grace and not just provide bread for eating for people, but also seed for sowing so that we can become an advocate for them and help them move past a dangerous point in their life and move toward a point of growth? And there are a couple of spiritual practices that Jesus teaches us that I think help push back these threats. If you look at the end of 2 Corinthians 9:10, it talks about a harvest that we should expect in our life, and it's a harvest of righteousness. And then if you look at the end of verse 11, he says it should also produce a heart of gratefulness, our thanksgiving in our life. These two things, righteousness and thanksgiving, are the two things that should be the pesticides and the, the thing that keep disease out of our production of grace in our life. And we're going to focus this week on, on that right standing of righteousness with God. And then we're going to use verse 11 to bounce into next week because the next two verses talk a lot about thankfulness and how important that is in our life. And so today we're going to talk about this harvest of righteousness. What are some practices that we can do that will allow this harvest of righteousness to happen in our life? Now, when you hear this word Righteousness. I don't know about you, but maybe you don't fully understand what it means, but the word here literally means right standing. To be in a right standing specifically here and right standing before God. Now, when we hear these words, for some of us, it might be a little intimidating or frightening. Like, I have to have a harvest of righteousness. We, we immediately think of all the shortcomings that we have, how far I still have to go to be in right standing with people, much less God. But what I want you to hear this morning is this. Harvesting righteousness, our right standing before God, is not a one-time thing in your life. It is this ongoing process of moving toward health, of moving healthier and healthier, and growing and growing. It's not day one being able to produce a full field of wheat in your life. It's being able to say, I'm moving toward health, that I am moving toward a right standing with God. Scripture teaches us all throughout Scripture that God is continuing to work out his salvation in us. That God is completing the work that he began in us. He is, he is continually working in us. It is not a I am done mentality. The word mature, and I, I've talked about this before. Sometimes we use the word, you know, oh, oh, he's, he's a mature Christian. She's a mature Christian. I wish one day I could be a mature Christian. I think that's a, not the right goal to work toward. The right goal is to work toward being a maturing Christian or a maturing believer. Because you know what mature means? It means it's done growing. There's no more room for growth. When you have become mature as an adult, 
Do you know what that actually means? It now means you are not growing anymore. You're actually moving toward death. That's a bad thing, right? I mean, like, you're like, oh, maybe I don't want to be an adult anymore. Like, I start moving. But as soon as you're done growing, there's only one place left to go in the physical realm, and it's, it's down. And uh, the same is true. Like, what I want us to understand is we are not one day in this world going to be done with our spiritual life. We will continue to be maturing, but we are moving toward a right standing with God. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if you're not there yet. Don't be discouraged if you've only moved a step or two away from the pit. Be encouraged that you are moving in that direction. I know when we hear that word righteousness, so often we think that is not me. I can't identify with that. I'm not a righteous person. I know myself too well. But what he's saying here is we need to move toward being in right standing with God. And this is the beauty of grace. It's the ability of God to not hold grudges, to forgive freely, to constantly allow us to begin new and fresh with him. God wants wants us to be in right standing with him, not so he can control or manipulate us. It's because he wants what's best for us. He knows that as we move closer to right standing with him, we're moving farther and farther away from this pit of despair. And there are two spiritual practices that Jesus talks about and that are used uh, throughout Scripture and throughout the history of Christianity that talk about how we actually begin to move toward righteousness and deal with this disease and these pests that come our way. And so I want us to hit a couple of these. There's a passage in Matthew that we're going to look at this morning that equates to how we allow this harvest of righteousness to play out. And there's two practices I want us to challenge us to think about this morning. The passage is in Matthew 6, 5 through 8. Let me read this. And it says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask of him. The first spiritual practice in our lives that I think will help produce righteousness is to embrace prayer. Embrace prayer. And we talked last week about we want to become a praying church and the idea of providing people to come and pray with after a service. And and that's going to be a beautiful thing. I'm excited about that. But can I tell you, as beautiful as this is, to be a really praying church, we must embrace this personally as well. It's not just that you have somebody to come pray with, it's that you are drawn to become a person of prayer individually. So what is prayer and why is it so important? I could do a whole series on prayer, and maybe we will down the road, but right now I just want to give you a couple of things to think about and a couple of misconceptions that I think keep us from becoming people of prayer, and they're mentioned in here. And the first misconception is this, is that we think our audience is other people instead of God. It says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't come into the synagogue and start screaming out your prayers for other people to hear. Don't forget, your audience is not other people. Prayer is not for other people. Prayer is for you and God. And too often, the only time you think or hear about prayers in the presence of of other people. We pray at church services. We pray at meals. We pray at family gatherings. Anywhere I go and there's a need for prayer, guess who gets asked to pray? I do. Like, you're the professional prayer, right? Please pray for us. And like, I've been asked to pray at some of the oddest 
moments in my life. We were at like a college reunion pool party and like we were just hanging out. I'm not even thinking about prayer and somebody like brings out hot dogs. They're like, all right, Patrick, say the blessing. And I'm like standing in my swim trunks in this shallow end. I'm like, all right, let's pray. I'm the professional prayer here. I guess nobody else can do this. And we just have these images of like, it's something we're supposed to do to create this moment, this spiritual moment. But the true power of prayer is not found in the words we use in our gatherings. And in this moment, the true power of prayer is found in the personal nature of it, the individual act of praying. Jesus says, do not be like these hypocrites, these Pharisees who just pray to get other people's attention. Instead, go privately to get God's attention. There is no public prayer that comes close to being as powerful as a private prayer offered in sincerity. I, I have a friend uh, growing up who, he, he is a boisterous prayer, is the only way I know how to say it. And I, like when he prays, I just feel like I'm like, you know, eavesdropping on a conversation with him and God. Uh, but I remember I'd grow up and people would come like afterwards and be like, man, that dude really knows how to pray. Like they're like, he's got the gift. And I'm like, hold on. Like, it's not just the gift that he can like entertain and engage us and encourage us while he prays. That's a great thing. But I said, the, he doesn't have the gift of prayer because we like it. We all have the gift of prayer because we have access to God. We have access to it. That's the gift. It's not in my ability to impress others with my prayer. It's in God's access to him through prayer, which is the amazing part of prayer. The second misconception we see here in the scripture is we think we have to know what we have to say to God, right? He says, don't use all these crazy words like the Gentiles do. Like these people don't even really know what they're saying. They're just using words they've heard before, hoping that they somehow connect with God. I'm glad we've gotten past that. I'm glad we don't deal. Uh, one of my favorite prayers growing up was, good Lord, good meat, thank God, let's eat. I mean, it was like, how many prayers could you right now? Like, what did you say at bedtime? You know, now lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake. I mean, that's a horrible prayer. These kids are like, if I should die before I wake, what is this? I mean, these, all these prayers that, and, and I'm not saying there's not value in teaching people how to pray. Even Jesus used the model of the Lord's prayer to give us understanding of what should be contained in our prayers. But can I just help you understand, there is no secret code to prayer. There is no special words that if you use will cause God to act in a certain way. You know what that really is? That's like witchcraft. That's an incantation. If I say these words the right way, then this will happen in return. Prayer is simply this. At its heart, at its core, it is an act of intimacy. It is being willing to allow God to see your heart, your hurts, your questions, your fears, your triumphs, your worries, your hopes, and share them with him. Here's what I want you to see. Prayer brings right standing or righteousness because in prayer we are standing right next to God. Not because of our words, not because of some secret formula that we use, not because other people were impressed, because when we go to God in prayer, we are standing right next to God. This gets rid of the disease in our life. Because it puts us as close as we can to the source of life. And allows grace to flow and function in our life. If you go down to Matthew 6, just a little farther down, 
he talks about another spiritual practice. And this one is fasting. And here's what he says. And he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you have fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The second spiritual practice to embrace is that of fasting. Embracing fasting will help bring righteousness, right standing in our life. Now, fasting is probably, and at least where I grew up and maybe where if you were involved in church, I never really heard much taught about fasting. Like it was one of those things like, you know, you should fast. Maybe it talks about it in the Bible, but it was like maybe either for the spiritual elite, like, oh, the pastor fast, you know, or this person, you would read a book about somebody fasting. Or it was like, oh, it's just a physical thing. Like, you know, maybe you put on some weight, so you should fast and pray to lose weight. I mean, that was like, you know, it's never really explained to me what this is. The truth is, fasting is much, is a very impactful thing that we can do in our life to bring about righteousness. And it is so much more than just about skipping a meal. I don't know about you, but when I don't eat, I don't get more righteous. I get hangry. You know, I get, I'm like, I've got to have some food. If, if this is all just about stopping eating, this is not a great spiritual practice. And so this is about much more than that. We must realize that fasting is about more than skipping a meal or abstaining for food for a specific amount of time. Fasting, while it can be tied to food, can be tied to many other things in our life as well. Here's what I want you to see fasting simply is. Fasting is the removal of something from our lives and a replacement of it with something else. That's what fasting is. It is the removal of something in our life and a replacement with something else. It's simply choosing to remove something and replace it maybe for a specific amount of time in order to focus on something else. I know people who remove a meal from their day in order to spend time in prayer. I know people who remove social media from their lives for a specific amount of time in order to actually focus on personal relationships. People remove other habits and things that consume their time to replace them with something else. Fasting is not just the removal of something. It also has to include the replacement of something. How does this produce righteousness in our life? I think it's when we do a couple of things. One is when we begin to fast from an action in our life, from some action that we do. One of the most effective ways that I've been able to overcome destructive, sinful, or harmful behaviors in my life is through fasting. It doesn't mean that I stop eating. Maybe I should do that too, but it means that I actually intentionally realize this action is hurting me. It's destructive in my life. And maybe I'm giving in to temptation. Maybe I know it and I know why I'm doing it and I'm struggling with it. But what I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to start with making a commitment. Maybe it's for a week. Maybe it's for 30 days or whatever. But I am going to make my best commitment to fast from this behavior. I grew up, and uh, I don't have a problem admitting, when I was young, I had a problem with lying. Like, it was just easy. You know, I found out easy. Like, I, I was scared to lie to begin with because, you know, I was always told if you lie, my parents would say, if you lie, you're going to get in more trouble. I've told my kids the same thing about that. And I just always thought, if I ever lied, like, God's going to hit me with a bolt of lightning. And then one time I lied, and it didn't happen. And nobody found out. And I was like, oh. That was pretty easy. Like, maybe I could do that again. And, and I didn't. I got in this habit of lying sometimes for no reason at all. And that crept into my life even when I was in college. And I remember there came a point where I was like, I, I need to deal with this. 
And one of the ways I dealt with it was I said, I'm just going to fast from lying. I will choose not to lie this week. And then I realized I need to start with a day. Like, it's tough. Like, uh, one day was tough enough. But, like, I was like, I'm going to replace that. But here's what I had to do. Or I'm going to refrain from that. But I had to choose to replace it with something else. So when I had a desire to lie, I would say, you know what? Let me speak encouragement. Let me speak truth instead. So we have all of these practices in our life, these actions, that if we need to take care of, one of the best ways to deal with those is fasting. I I don't know about you, but uh, this is one of the toughest things in our life, because we know things that shouldn't be in our life. And we know that there's probably a way to deal with them, but we don't know how to get from here to there. And this is what the practice of fasting is. It's a process of moving from point A to point B in a very intentional process of removing an action and replacing it with something else. Think about it. Replace greed with generosity. Replace lust with acts of love. Replace anger with acts of joy. Replace jealousy with acts of gratitude. Replace pride with acts of service. And it goes on and on. I'm going to share it. There's a specific example. In the years I've been in ministry, one of the things I constantly get, especially from men, is a struggle with pornography. They're like, this has been in my life, and I've tried to beat it and beat it and beat it, and it just keeps coming back. I can't. I, I don't like the person I become when I give in to it. I don't like the way it leads me in my life. And I want to change, and I'll, you know, do everything. I'll cancel subscriptions. I'll erase hard drives. I'll try to get away from it. And then all of a sudden, I'm back into it in one moment. And here's what happens. This very specific example. We try to remove without ever replacing. It's like, I just want to get rid of this. And what I want you to hear is, it's not just about getting rid of it. It's about filling that void, that need with something else. Picking up something else that's bringing, edifying you. That's edifying those around you. Reading a book, reading, writing. Uh, building something, all kinds of different things that you can actually do that edify those around you. I, I did youth ministry for years, and this was a big topic, as you can imagine, dealing with teenage boys and dealing with pornography. And I w- I'd often teach, you know, read or write or do something different. And I had this kid come to me at the end of the year, and he's like, Patrick, I took your advice. I have read 28 books this year as I've dealt with pornography. It's like, you know, but he's like, I'm focused. I'm replacing that in my life. And the focus of that, uh, that example can be played out in every other aspect of our life where we need to take a step of growth. Remove and replace an action. But here's the thing. We often just think it's about an action. But there's a second way of fasting, and it's also fasting from an attitude. Attitudes that control our life. Another key way to fast is intentionally choose to fast from allowing an attitude to control your thoughts and perspective. Maybe you allow negativity, hopelessness, fear, self-loathing to overcome you and to move you away from grace in your life. Just as you can fast from physical activity, you can also fast from mental activity as well. And this actually probably takes more willpower in our life. Again, the key is not just telling yourself, I won't be negative I won't be fearful or I won't be self-loathing. It is instead having a plan to replace those thoughts and attitudes with righteous ones and truthful ones. This is what Scripture talks about, taking every thought captive and determining that you will not allow these negative thoughts, these harmful attitudes to take root in your life. Again, make a commitment for a period of time to say, I will not think 
I will not allow negativity to take root in my thoughts. And like you are intentionally fasting from it. Fasting from actions and attitudes. Keep away the pests in our life that will come and steal our righteousness and steal the abundance of grace in our life. These two practices, prayer and fasting, are key spiritual practices that we must encourage one another in. This is what creates the fertile soil for righteousness to grow in our lives and for us to move from the edge of the pit to move toward growth and sustainability through the righteousness of God playing out in our life. So how does this impact us as a church? If you've been coming to New City, you know usually every week I end with a question, but in this series I'm actually ending with a vision for what this can mean for us. How do we allow this to play out? Two weeks ago, we talked about how we're reshaping, how we're approaching our missions giving and impacting uh, our, our culture and our community and our world through missions giving. Last week, we talked about becoming a place in a community where you can come when you have a need, you can express that need, and somebody will immediately pray for you after a service, during a, a response time, during a singing time. Somebody will come and pray for you. just have to make yourself available. We have people that will do that. We're moving in that direction. And today, we want to talk about the next step, the next vision that we have. And as much as we want to be a a place of generosity and a place that's becoming a place of prayer, we want to become a place that's advocating for people by becoming a place that is growth-oriented. And when I say growth-oriented, I don't mean numerically. I mean spiritually growth-oriented. I want us to learn how to create these harvests of righteousness in our life, to take deeper looks at what it means to pray, what it means to fast, what it means to study scripture, how to apply scripture to our life. And so what we're going to do this year is eight times this year, just about once a month, but we'll take some months off. We're going to offer classes, that one-hour one classes on how to. How do you pray? How do you read your Bible? How do you do this? And this is what I'd love to hear from you guys on that survey, is give us ideas of, I, this is a skill I need to know to grow righteousness in my life. I, I can come up with eight but I'd also love to hear from you and how you would like to grow in those areas. And here's what we're going to do. I, the plan is right now that we would offer those at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, an hour before service. We'll have child care on that Sunday. If you want to have to bring children in early, uh, we'll set up a place and do that here. Uh, but if you can't make it at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, one of those eight times, we're also going to record those. We'll make them available online. And we're going to create this, this library of, of resources of how do we as a congregation become growth-oriented, moving away from the pit of despair, advocating for one another to spur one another on to growth and good deeds. As excited, I'm, I'm excited about all these visions that God is drawing us to. But I, if you start to see how these all play together, as we're generous in our missions giving, as we encourage one another and pray for one another, and now we spur one another on and we're growing together. I think God's got some amazing things in store for us this year. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we come to the end of our teaching time? And as we do, uh, the band's going to come and we'll have one last song of, uh, that just allows us a chance to worship and to, uh, to respond. And this is the time when in just a minute we'll stand, we'll sing together. And if you want to remain in a prayerful attitude, you can do that. Uh, myself, Alicia, and uh, maybe one other will be down here Uh, along the front row and if you need prayer this morning just make your way down while we're standing and uh, approach one of us and you don't have to share uh, anything specific if you want to that's fine but if you just say i just need prayer share a name and we will pray with you right now but 
Let's, uh, let's pray together now, and then we'll close our time together. Father, we are grateful that you don't leave us in the pit, but you also don't leave us on the edge of the pit. God, you advocate for us. You go before us, and you create an environment where we can grow, and you don't just give us bread to, to feed us once, but God, you give us seed to grow in our life, to multiply righteousness, and to allow righteousness to flourish in our lives so that we have an abundance of grace to share with other people. God, help us to become a church that is growth-oriented, that wants to spur one another on, to encourage, to step forward, to grow in what it means to pray, to fast, to study, to memorize, to, to journal, to just meditate on who you are. God, let us grow in these practices that cultivate righteousness in our lives. God, thank you for this gathering, this chance that we have to hear from you and to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.